You're about to experience the cultural phenomena that's sweeping the nation. Oh yeah, it's happening. Sticking paws off me, you damn dirty ape! Episode 82 of the Stinking Paws podcast with Scott and Charlie. Hello, mate. Hello, how are you? I'm very well, thank you, on this fine Sunday morning. First time we've recorded in quite a little while, actually. We haven't actually... Ages, yeah. It's uh, it, it not planned that way either. I just, just sort of am about that way, I guess. Yeah, at least we didn't have that massive, great five-month break that we had last year. Um, it's a battle. Yeah, yeah. We needed that just to recharge our batteries a little bit, I think. We, we're never getting tired of the podcast. You know, we, we actually, there was a little event a couple of weeks ago that sort of recharged our batteries a little, didn't it? We uh, got together with some of the pod pals a few weeks back. It was great in a, a sunny Berkshire. Yeah. Um, great to meet Adam and uh, Smokey yep. for the first time. Yep. Um, also, really lovely to uh, spend time at his home with his family as well made to feel very welcome you know the, the, the total yeah. strangers turning up on his poor wife's doorstep and being welcomed in with open arms it was absolutely fantastic we're going to do some more stuff like that and and we're sort of talking across promoting each other's shows just to get word out there not that adams probably needs any more promoting the guy's doing really well sorry mate uh, wait until you see you followed him yesterday really has he got another big name that's not the Obama just one, slightly. is it? It's not the Obama yeah. one, is it? <laughs> yeah. Just saw a glimpse of that on Facebook. Adam is being followed by President Obama or stalked. We're not too sure. One of the two. <laughs> that is brilliant news. Well done, sir. He's actually listening to the uh, secret history of Hollywood. <laughs> That'd be amazing. But genuinely, one of those things that you could just recommend to every anyone and, and not not be sure whether they were going to enjoy it or not. So yeah. it's not really a surprise when he's getting these kind of accolades. No, no. We, we certainly need Adam more than he needs us. That's the way I'm looking at it. <laughs> Just a bit. <laughs> Today, our review was selected by your good self. Yeah, you may laugh. I watched it last night. It's... Well, what is it? You just tell the audience what you've, you, you've thrown at me this, this month. It's uh, David Lynch's... Uh, directorial debut, uh, mm. a Razorhead from 1977. So yeah, we'll be doing 40 that. Years old this year. Yeah, doing that a little bit later. But further to sort of discussions that we had on the last show, we're trying to get some structure to this. You know, this whole <laughs> sort of mess of a podcast that we yeah that we've been doing for four and a half years now and still haven't got it right. We're trying to get something together, like a bit of structure, a feature. And yeah. typical stinking pause fashion, it's, it's been christened foreplay. And vulgar. Vulgar, yeah, the premise behind Especially it. Especially on the Sabbath as well. <laughs> foreplay on the Sabbath. And the sort of premise behind it is just, we're not doing a top four. It's just going to be four movies that are 
hopefully going to generate a bit of discussion. So there's no... You can put these in order if you wanted to, you know, in order of preference or whatever it's going to be. There's going to be a different topic every episode. And in relation to Eraserhead, Charlie selected... Is it the four most disturbing movies or the four most disturbing things you've seen in the movie? Either or, really. The, the movie itself could be disturbing as a package or there could be a particular moment that you just think, oh, God, this is <laughs> this is on another level, really. I've, I've got both in my selection. Um, yes, I think mine might cover like a whole movie at one point. Um, there's certainly scenes that I've I think, selected. I think the thing is as well is that usually if a film has such a disturbing scene in it that often ends up defining the film. So, yeah, you know, if, if you have a particular film with a really bad scene, people will always refer to that as the film with dot, 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 won't they? Exactly. And I think I've got a couple of examples, a couple of examples of that. We put it out on Facebook and we got some fantastic response, which is what we were hoping for. You know, there are actually people out there listening and interacting with us. So thank you guys, all those that took part. We'll be reading those out in just a second. Let's play the jingle. I've come up with a new jingle, Charlie. Let's do some foreplay. One, two, three. Well, had I done foreplay? One, two, three, four. Ah, ah, ah. <laughs> Okay, Charlie, the inaugural foreplay feature. Um, I've got four. I've possibly got some honourable mentions, but I haven't actually listed any, but there, there was loads that I could come up with. Did you set yourself any sort of criteria for deciding what makes something disturbing or the movie disturbing in the first place? I think um, typically, with the exception of one that I've got here, I try to avoid horror because... <laughs> Good, yep. That is, that is a genre that immediately sets out to disturb and, and frighten and perhaps even cause a bit of outrage. Exactly um, my thoughts. Yeah, they're designed to disturb a lot of horrors, aren't they? So I've avoided things like Human Centipede or the Japanese guinea pig series of films, you know, because that's what they're you know, designed to do. Well, our good friends Smokey and Ben at yeah. Rated H Podcast, they will probably attest to the fact that some horror films actually go out of their way not just to frighten the viewer but to actually uh kind of offend their sensibilities as well <laughs> yeah there is there is a difference between disturbing and frightening definitely um yeah i've sort of i've sort of selected ones that made me feel uncomfortable certain things that i've sort of dwelled on it a long time after and scenes or films that when you think back you still get that sort of shiver up your spine that's sort of like oh my god yeah i remember that yeah, also the idea that um, I'm not going to be watching that again in a hurry. Yes, there's a very obvious omission on my list here that was going to be put in, but I'll explain. Well, no, I'll tell you now. Grave of the Fireflies, as you well know, okay, yep. was going to be on my list specifically for that reason. I'm in no hurry to watch that film again because I tried to define if it disturbed me or it upset me, and I think it upset me more than disturbed me, that film. Yeah, because you, you know what kind of atrocities happen in war. But I think it was the com think, combination that it was a cartoon you know, as well, and you're not expecting yeah. that sort of realism and gut punch to the stomach that 
a, a piece of animation could affect you in that way. So I was I was toying with the idea of putting Grave of the Fireflies on this list, but I've left it as a sort of an also ran. So, well, did you ever see um, the adaptation of Raymond Briggs? Uh, when, when the wind, wind blows. Yes, yes, and that's probably going to be sort of mentioned in something I'm going to talk about a little later on. That whole and okay. yeah, that whole era of mid eighties Cold War fear. And again, I think I know where you're going. You with that, know, don't we? <laughs> and and again, it is something that probably Ben and Matt are a bit more expert opinions on these sort of things because they've done a whole series of of podcasts closer to midnight on that sort of genre of film. So I think you know where I'm going. I'm saving that one till last. Do you want to go first? One each, or yeah, we'll alternate. Yeah, with this. Yeah, we'll alternate. So do you want to take the first shot, mate? We'll have a go. Okay, then. My first uh, selection for a film or a particular film scene that I found truly disturbing is, I'm pretty sure you knew I was going to mention this, it's uh, Salo, (laughs) the uh, Pasolini uh, mid-70s nightmare. Nightmare. Deliberately avoided it because I knew you would put it on your list. Right, okay. Um, I watched this film well before... uh, thoughts of, of reviewing films or doing a podcast ever came into my mind yeah. uh, I'm talking years ago mm-hmm. a friend and I said shall we watch it like we, we both sort of like researched what are the most fucked up films essentially <laughs> just casually <laughs> and this yeah this this is the kind of people that I hang around with yeah. um, <laughs> that was at the top of every list yes um... and it, it just, yeah, we, we had to do it, really. But sorry, what was no, you going to no, say? No, I was just going to say, it's, it's gone down in sort of stinking pause history, hasn't it, as the movie that we will possibly review last. If, if we ever decide to finish this show, we, we're going to go out with Salo or, you know, or some major celebration, the 500th episode or something, we've decided it's got to be Salo. It's, it's notorious, mate. It has got this whole aura about it and I'm I'm intrigued to know how many people have actually seen it compared to how many of those are just aware of it it's weird Salo because it doesn't just exist as a trying to think of a more contemporary term but as a video nasty kind of thing it's actually got a really credible reputation as an art house film hasn't it yes that's that's what it was sold as during the the video age it wasn't when i was running the video shops in the early 90s and it was sort of released i think it was on artificial eye or something one of these major highbrow video labels you know it wasn't tucked away with all the the murky nastiness of the horror section it was there as a foreign language art house movie as you say yeah that, and that is consistent with Pasolini's reputation as director. Of course, yeah. Um, I'm not entirely sure it's consistent with the content of the film, though. I think it is horrendous. Um, I, I, I'll be honest, I couldn't really judge it as a film. Uh, one, I didn't have any uh, desire to kind of use any critical faculties. And two, it was just too much of an experience while I was watching it to even contemplate whether this was a good film or not um it's pretty savage throughout and then it kind of reaches a crescendo in the last 10 minutes that is just (laughs) the most disgusting depraved horrible thing i've ever seen on screen when did you last watch it was it the first and Um, only time you haven't watched it more than once i take it 
I would say I was about 17 when I watched it. So we're talking about 12 years ago. For a minute, I thought you were going to say I was seven then. Uh, that would have been, that, I mean, that would have been a matter for social services to uh, get to the bottom of, I think, if I had done. So have you got any, is it, does it fall in that category of, I mean, I'm in no rush to watch this again? Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. There, there's just so many things in it that I think will go down in cinematic history as not being topped in terms of how disturbing they are. And and don't get me wrong, this isn't just some like uh, some monstrosity conjured up by Pasolina. This is based on a uh, Marcus uh, Desaad's novel, isn't it? That's right, yeah. Isn't it? Yeah. Um, 120 Days of Sodomy or whatever, which is a incredible title. Um, <laughs> that's where the word sadism comes from, isn't it? The Marquis de Sade. That's it, yeah. I mean, 120 days of it. <laughs> Get the <Anasol> out. <laughs> we thought we needed some cushions at Rochester Kino screenings, but by <laughs> God, they're going to need some fucking cushions after that. Um, <laughs> I haven't seen it. I was about the same age, 17, 18, when I saw it. There is a pristine Blu-ray copy on the market came out last yeah because that's what you want in higher definition <laughs> children eating shit <laughs> I'm tempted I mean I had a little flick through YouTube just to try and remind myself of some of the things and even the YouTube clips were just disgusting me mate it's 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 the pinnacle of disturbing movies possibly it all depends what else is going to come up and I'm, I'm, some of the suggestions from our, our listeners are really good actually and I'm saving them till after we've done our four each okay um, you're not doing these in any particular order I take it you're just rattling these out yeah all four left an indelible impression yep. so I couldn't really chart them is that the motorbike it is but it's not <laughs> there's another one who's like the grand pooba of the uh, <laughs> motorbike scene in Medway that goes past as well that was that was an introduction, I think. Okay. Well, it wouldn't be a stinking pause episode without the bloody motorbike going past your window. Ridiculous. Um, first one I want to talk about, I think maybe on your list, and it's it's unique on my list that there's two scenes in this movie, but I think you're right in saying that those scenes actually define the movie as making it disturbing. It's that film with that scene. It's irreversible. It's irreversible. Yep. Gaspar Noé is irreversible. Yep. Is it on your list? Number two on my list. Right. Okay. So we can chat about this together. Yep. Listeners to the podcast will be aware of irreversible. We recorded a marvellous episode with the boys from History of Misunderstanding, Smokey and Stephen, on irreversible. And throughout the episode, as we were recording, we, we just kept saying we enjoyed the film, but we found it difficult to actually say that word with regard to this particular movie we enjoyed it but you shouldn't enjoy a film that, yeah. that depicts a nine minute rape scene without any cuts or music sound or what music would they put over the top of it for god's sake but no <laughs> um it's 70s guitar kind of oh <laughs> that's all Hill. good music the Benny Hill theme yeah. <laughs> but it's it's just there in all its nastiness. I don't think anybody had done anything previous prior to this or or since. And it is just... D d trying to think of a word, it is disturbing. It's grotesque. Grotesque. Yeah. Um, it's unrelenting. Um, it, it doesn't give you a opportunity as a viewer of the film to escape that 
horror. No, no, you cannot turn away. Well, you can turn away, but the film physically, it, it's there. There's nine minutes. And it's sort of pre preceded by the the death scene, the guy getting beaten to a pulp, his head getting crushed in by the fire extinguisher, which you think, well, there you go, there's the benchmark for your movie, because that happens within the first five minutes. Yeah. But then, 20, 30 minutes into the film, every single one of your senses is assaulted by this. And it's not just visual, because I think we had this conversation when we spoke about the review, was, I think Smokey asked, did you watch it with the sound up? Like the volume on your TV? Yeah. Because even that is, is, it just attacks you from every level. Does the camera actually move during that scene? I think it gets. I don't think so. No. I'm not sure. I'm sort of thinking, does it actually zoom in very slowly over the nine minutes? But I don't think it does. I think it's just sort of set in this, it's an underpass, isn't it, in Paris that the actual attack takes place in? And even the setup for it, you know something's going to happen. You're instantly on the edge of your seat, particularly for us, because we knew that that was the, you know, the, the crux of the whole story was this this road <clears> scene. <throat> but when you look at the film as a whole package, it makes the movie disturbing because of the disjointed timeline. The film is played in reverse, um, so you see the yeah, after- but the yeah the event the events are are chronologically backwards, if that's a way of describing it. You know the <laughs> the aftermath of the rape scene is depicted in the first scene leading up to the rape scene goes to the beginning is at the end and again you're instantly sort of disturbed because your mind's disjointed because of the timeline so you got that added to it as well because after the rape scene it's as if everything's normal yeah there's a few people heading into the city isn't it on the metro or something like that i think Um, you just witnessed this this brutal attack and then it goes into oh great we're going out for a night out we're going clubbing that really throws you that's what makes it even more disturbing not that the nine minutes is disturbing enough but it is a very clever film definitely and i think the intention behind it was to say that you know with every horrible kind of violent incident that takes place and every confrontation that you witness there's always a build-up to that that you don't necessarily know about and it's also Showing you had this idea of how violence begets violence. Yes, definitely. Quite rightly on both our lists, I'm, I'm, I was pretty sure you were going to include that, but I wanted to have a little bit of a discussion of that. But also because it is one we've reviewed, so it's going to be sort of familiar to some of our listeners, our thoughts and feelings on the movie anyway. Anything you want to add to that? Because I know you say it's on your list. Have you got anything else you need to say about that one, mate? It's kind of illustrates my point that I made earlier because there's very little that I remember about the film other than those two scenes. They are so mm. uh, overpowering. Yeah. Um, and that is a film that I would really struggle to go back to again, not because um, as as a piece of as a piece of cinema, it's actually really well made. And, and from what I remember thinking, it was it was well acted, yes. well written, but. The only reason you watch that nine-minute scene is because you don't know it's going to be lasting that long. Nope. So on a rewatch, there would be a temptation to kind of not want to see that part of it. Yeah, yeah. It's it, it, Again, it falls in that category of a film I'm in no rush to watch again. I've seen it. I've had my reaction to it. I'm wondering what my reaction 
to it would be a second time around. I don't want to become immune to it. I don't want to watch the film and not have a reaction to that scene by becoming familiar with it. And you know it, what I mean? was, it, this was a second time viewing for uh, Smokey and Stephen when yeah. we reviewed it, and it didn't sound as if it lost any of its power. No, definitely. They, they actually said it was probably more powerful second time around because they were expecting it as well. You, you're on the edge of your seat knowing what's coming up. Yeah. Ooh, uh, for want of a better phrase... <laughs> Well, Smokey was wanking. <laughs> okay, so that's on your list as well. So, do you want me to do the next one, or because then we've done two each, then haven't we? Just uh... yeah, if you go for, for that, yeah. then yeah. yeah, okay. It's a movie I know you haven't seen. Pretty sure you haven't seen. It's legendary in the history of the video nasty era. As listeners and yourself are fully aware, my stepfather was a video pirate back in the golden days of that era, the late 80s, mid-80s. And one of the movies that he carried around in one of his suitcases that he was peddling to all his mates was Cannibal Holocaust. Okay. Okay, legendary, as, as you know, you, you're fully aware of the film, and I'm pretty sure you've yeah. got no intention of watching it. Um, my older brother had a copy of it on VHS, mm. and I didn't really have any desire no. to watch it. No. I've got it on Blu-ray. I haven't <laughs> I haven't watched it since I bought the Blu-ray about 18 months ago. I'm probably going to watch it this Halloween, and it's going to be one of those ones that I'm going to be a bit trepidatious about. The whole film is, is a pile of crap, to be honest. It's this documentary. It's a mockumentary of these guys that go out into the South African jungles, and they're, they're, they're attacked by cannibals, basically. But it's done as a found footage. It's one of the very first sort of found footage before Blair Witch and all that lot, you know, sort of jump, yeah. you know, jump to the limelight. And there was two versions of this movie doing the rounds that they actually did manage to cut one. Um, and it's these this particular scene that is cut that makes this movie just that little bit more disturbing than it already is. All right, you know, you, you know, we've got scenes of people eating false arms and false legs, and and you know, just lots of sort of like mutilation and you know, bloodshed in general, which is a video nasty as we've come to expect. But there is some real life footage of animal death, uh, which was cut even on sort of re-releases, and it has now been restored to this pristine Blu-ray copy. And I am really worried about watching this because it's yeah, it's one thing that is is it, it does turn my stomach. And another film that came to mind when I was thinking about this is the bit where the ox gets hacked to death in Apocalypse Now. That's exactly what I was thinking of. Yeah. yeah. Just right at the sort of denouement of the yeah. film. Yeah. Just as you're sort of relaxing into the end of the movie, that, that scene happens where the ox gets this bloody great machete through its back, you know, and, it's, and you know it's real. Yeah. You know that's real. That is not a special effect. This particular scene in Cannibal Holocaust um, involves turtles, live turtles being decapitated and skinned alive sort of thing being ripped apart and the shells taken off and stuff. it's horrible it's an absolutely disgusting piece of film because it's real yeah we're adults we can detach ourselves when we're watching a movie you know watching a horror film we can go oh that's a great special effect or oh that's done well or whatever you can't do it here you haven't got that opportunity to say wow that's really good prosthetics that blood looks really realistic those guts look superb it's because it's genuine and that's what makes it really disgusting really disturbing um yeah it's out there it's on youtube i'm not going to urge anybody to watch it 
of any sort of sensitive no, I think, disposition. I think I'll avoid that. I think I would find that quite distressing. Yeah. Um, and I think there's there's a real issue in cinema, isn't there, with animal cruelty? Mm. I think there were scenes in Heaven's Gate. Oh, God, it led that, to a big uproar with the horses and the explosions and things like that. That's wasn't right. It? Yeah. it led to sort of various protests outside uh, one of the premieres of uh, the film. I think that's what led to the um, the Humane Society actually having them disclaimers on the movies now. They're present now, aren't they? And they put the thing in the credits now saying no animal was hurt during this production sort of thing. They have, that's what it led. That's where it came from, I think. And I can see where that, that, that demand comes from. I think it's not only distressing to watch it because it's real, but it's the idea that they're they're attacking something that had absolutely no choice yeah. as to whether it was going to be part of this or not. And, yeah. that, and that is... It's an absolute liberty, to be honest. Yeah, yeah. But isn't Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid got chickens having their heads shot off or something? Is that the Peck and Pa movie where that happens, I think? I can't remember. I think so. I haven't seen it, but um, that's one I want to get round to because um, isn't it a Bob Dylan soundtrack as yes. well? Yeah, it is. Yeah, Knocking on Heaven's Doors in it, I think, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. but, but that I think, I think it was that one that was notorious for having chickens' heads shot off. What a strange age we used to live in, mate, where that was totally acceptable. That, that's really bizarre. I just, yeah, it, it does, it kind of sticks in the core because it, you're doing it to something that's utterly defenceless yeah. and it's there for nothing, for no other reason than people's entertainment. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm, I, for one, am delighted that that's not really part of cinema anymore. Yeah, yeah, there was a big thing, you know, during the... the peak of the westerns you know sort of like the 30s the 40s or whatever you know whenever you see like horses sort of charging cowboys and indians that sort of thing and the you know the gunshots go off and the horses fall over well they're actually yeah. they're actually tripped there's um like wires between their legs and things like that and they pull on a rope and it actually trips them over in 90 percent of those cases those horses don't fall down naturally they don't fall down it's like pretty, that. it's pretty bad but then i guess um that's, it's also, you know, anachronistic to kind of go back that far and, and complain about certain conditions when people thought differently at the time and, yeah. you know, there were all sorts of problems in society, I guess. So All for the sake of entertainment, mate, basically, yeah. Yeah. Horrible, horrible. Okay, that was my number two. Number three, mate, from you. Okay, um, I, I did say that I was avoiding horror, yeah. but this had to appear okay. because of the impression that it left. Okay. And uh, I've gone with the 1974 version of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Marvellous. Um, I avoided it, but... Um... In particular, the dinner table scene. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we discussed this very first year of the podcast. It was a Halloween special with Paul and Liam. And I think the word that we all agreed on, was it grimy? Grimy was the word. was the word, wasn't it? Tell us about the dinner scene, mate. What makes it grimy? What makes it disturbing? So uh, I haven't seen the film since then, mm. um, but ultimately it leads up to one of the characters, I think, is it Sally, perhaps? I think so. Can't remember because I haven't watched it since then either, to be honest. So she's being held captive at this dinner table where they're all sitting down to eat and it's Leatherface, uh, the grandpa and... Um, is it an uncle it or like, something? It's his brother. Yeah, brother. Yeah, and <laughs> it's, it's almost um, it's it's horrifying because it is just this constant wailing and and, and screaming and, and terror. Mm. And 
it almost becomes psychedelic. It's it's very weird. It's it's like the reason I chose this was because it's a new kind of terror that I'd witnessed in a film. Okay. It wasn't trying to make you jump. It wasn't necessarily trying to make you feel faint with any kind of gore. Yeah. But there was something absolutely revolting and um, petrifying about it that I'd never seen prior to that and have never encountered afterwards. It just it's it's nightmarish. That's a good way of describing it because when we talk about Eraserhead a little later on, yep. I've sort of made some notes about the whole the whole sort of spectacle of Eraserhead. He's probably the closest I've ever seen on celluloid to a nightmare being filmed. Yeah. Texas Chainsaw Massacre is probably a very good example as well. Well of that particular scene. Because you could imagine dreaming that and waking up in the morning thinking, oh my fucking God, you know. Absolutely, yeah. Because there's no escape from it as well, isn't there? It's the whole thing, because she's tied to the chair and all this crazy shit is going on around her that she's witness to and she can't do anything about. Um, and then you feel there's trapped the as scene well. where mm. they get the grandpa to commit the murder, but he's, he's absolutely... He's just static, isn't he? So they're yeah. putting the axe in his hand and trying to... Oh, it's, it's <laughs> mental. <laughs> it's a bloody good choice, mate. Um, I sort of considered it, but because there were so many... Cause when, when you actually sort of collated this list, did you think there was far too many to choose from? There were, and I, <laughs> I tried to focus with the exception of one or two um, on things that we'd reviewed in the past, because... Yeah. I'm of the opinion now that if I'm going to sit down and watch something that I know has a reputation for be, for being disturbing or uncomfortable, I'm probably going to save it for you. <laughs> Thank you very much. Um, no worries. I've avoided, there's a couple of big ones here that I've avoided because I haven't seen them and I know they've got reputations for being disturbing or there's disturbing scenes in them. And I'm sure you haven't seen these either. So I'll just, just quickly rattle these off. I haven't included Antichrist, the Lars von Trier movie what? Uh, a Serbian film which would probably be that sounds fucking horrendous exactly, Serbian film. exactly. I haven't included Ichi the Killer Takeshi Miike it's, again, it's, it's been on my shelf for six years, seven years and I'm going to go into that in a minute with the reasons behind that and, and Funny Games as well, the Hanukkah film um, if you know people that have probably seen a thousand more movies than we have would probably include those four movies as the most disturbing films or things they've seen but I just wanted to <laughs> there goes the motorbike there it goes sorry no that's fine I just I just I wanted to <laughs> just wanted to include things that I've seen that we can actually sort of seriously comment on so apologies if yeah. you know some of these are missing but then the feedback we've got from some of our listeners, some of those are on there. So, yeah, Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Um, that is on my list to watch Halloween as well. It's you know it's been good for three four years, and I, I need to see that again. Yeah, it's 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 a great film of its genre, and it like I say, it, it kind of frightens people in a way that no other film can. Yeah, because it's 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 the disturbing element of it, as you say. Okay. <clears throat> My number three, talking to Keshi Miike, um, I got right into his films. I mean, we've seen Old Boy. I know you've seen Old Boy. Are you aware of what? Well, you're aware of his other work. Have you seen anything else of his that you you can think of? I don't think so. There no. was a, Old Boy formed part of a trilogy, didn't it? That was the um, the Vengeance trilogy. Yeah. Yeah, uh, I haven't seen any of those. Okay. But, um, okay. I haven't even seen the Spike Lee remake. 
Michael Oldboy. Yeah, don't bother with that. <laughs> Saw it? Yeah, okay, fine. <laughs> Back in 1999, Takeshi Miike made a film. You will know this. It's called Audition. Yes, I've, I've um, heard quite a bit about this. Yeah, probably seen the cover. You know, this beautiful-looking lady, but she's just got this very blank, evil look on her face. Obviously up to some sort of nastiness, but it doesn't give too much away. I first saw this on Channel 4, as in most of these sort of movies, my first viewings are on Channel 4 years ago. I've since bought it on Blu-ray. It's become a bit of a favourite, which is a bit weird for a disturbing movie. Because of the way the disturbing parts of the film are put across, they are so well done. Yeah. Not so much, as we said, when you get a special effect in a movie and you can sort of detach yourself from it, especially in a horror film, yeah. and you can go, like, you know, that's good, like we said, good gore, good blood. This is very realistic. It's a revenge-type movie. I don't want to give too much away, but it's, it's the two scenes in particular. A guy is, is, is held captive by this particular lady, and, and the scene that everybody knows is, is he's, he's drugged. He's been paralysed by this drug. She's got him captive on the floor of her apartment. And while he's there unable to move she gets acupuncture needles and starts tapping them into his eyelids and Arthur. yeah all over his body all over his face but in particular his eyes and he's totally motionless can't do anything okay you're squirming just at the description already aren't yes. you yes oh what makes it even more disturbing and i will play the sound clip in a second is that all the way through it this guy can't speak because he's paralysed and the only thing she says is kitty 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 <laughs> kitty 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 <laughs> just when you think that this guy's suffered enough she pulls out a piano wire raises his foot and saws his fucking ankle off fucking hell right you see this piano wire going up and down up and down and and you don't have to see anything to make it disturbing again as i said about irreversible the soundscape that you hear in the background of this piano wire going through skin muscle bone it just turns your stomach but you do see a little bit of gore in this you know but that's not the worst part of the film the film is told in sort of flashbacks and um, again a sort of disjointed timeline if you watch the trailer there's a scene where she's there all sort of calm and collected and in the background there's a big sack big sort of hessian sack and it's got a body in it because you see it move every now and again and you think fucking hell that's disturbing what the hell is going on there at one point she releases the body from the sack and this guy He's got both his feet missing, his tongue's been cut out, his ears. He's got three fingers missing on one hand, and he's starving. Absolutely starving, this gut bloke. He's been held captive for God knows how long. She gets a dog bowl and throws up into it. <sighs> Puts it down on the floor, and he sticks his face into it and starts eating it. Oh, mate. The, <laughs> and that's the thing, isn't it? That's like... <laughs> That is so much more disturbing than 
like someone's limbs getting cut off. Exactly. Because it, I think because it's but it's that's, original. That's the bit that everybody remembers is oh, this is the bit with the acupuncture needles and his his foot gets cut off, but they forget that they just witnessed this thing earlier. Yeah. That is twice as fucking bad. No, I'd definitely be <laughs> chondering myself if I watch that. I've seen it three or four times because I, I love Takeshi Miike and Itchy the Killer, <clears throat> I've, I've heard is worse, okay, and it's on a lot of people's disturbing lists. And it's one that I'm a bit, you know, scared to watch. For the you know sake of the right word, I th- I'm scared to watch it because yeah. if if maybe <laughs> maybe we'll review that one in the future. I think we might have to, mate. As a, as a blind watch, the pair of us, yeah, yeah, yeah. Get your back for a razor head, you bastard. Exactly. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so that's my number three. Top that, sunshine. <laughs> okay, um, this isn't really as bad, but it it will sort of lead us nicely onto a razor head. Yeah. Um, for my number four, mm-hmm. I chose the scene in Blue Velvet when um, I think we've both, I think we've been introduced to both of these characters at this stage. But it's the first scene where you see Isabella Rossellini interact with Dennis Hopper in yeah. the apartment. Of course, yeah. And I would say there's possibly worse things. Well, actually, there's definitely worse things in <laughs> even in uh, David Lynch's. Uh, catalogue yeah but just how disturbing that was and and maybe not just the kind of psychotic nature of what was going on but just how frightening dennis hopper is in that scene as well we know he can play psycho very well really what he was a fucking lunatic wasn't he to be honest but we've only previous to that we've only ever seen him unhinged not full-blown psychotic which is what he depicts here He's kind of shot to bits in Apocalypse Now, yeah. and we reviewed Easy Wider, and there were aspects that kind of showed his neuroses and, mm. and how heavily he was into uh, drinking drugs. Um, but this is him playing one of the most powerful villainous roles that I've ever seen in a film, and it culminates in... In lots of ways in the movie, but there's this particular scene where he's got this um, oxygen mask and Isabella Rossellini's there mm. on the chair, and it is just fucking vile, to yeah. be honest. The thing is as well, I think in the the lead-up to the introduction of that scene, there's no inkling that that's coming along. No. The film sort of plays along as this, this almost like murder mystery almost to start with, and then typical Lynch, he just turns your brain around inside out. And says, no, we're not going to give you that murder mystery type movie where it's two kids, you know, investigating this severed ear. It's uh, it's going to go a little bit dark here. <laughs> dark it bloody goes. <laughs> there's, there were a few others as well. Um, I mean, later there's the scene with the fella singing Roy Orbison. Yeah. And yeah. that isn't conventionally disturbing, but it is the same time like it, it still gets you at the same time you think what the fuck is going on it's disturbing and, in the context uh, of the movie isn't it that's right it just shouldn't be there it's it's just bizarre um and really that's that's as much as i'll probably say about david lynch for now yeah. um because i think the nature of a razor head will lead us onto this kind of discussion but oh. yeah that was that was definitely a scene that i think left a great impression on me yeah, um, lots more David Lynch conversation to come up because there are 
you know, some similarities between sort of Blue Velvet, Eraserhead, and, and a lot of his works, you know, as I, as I watched Eraserhead, I'm thinking, yeah, I can see where that part of the Elephant Man came from or that part in, you know, Wild at Heart, you know, and it's it's, oh, it's, all, it's all there. It's all there. So, it, yeah. It's insane how many kind of tropes there are running through his back catalogue. Mm. But just one other thing I wanted to say before you go into your final choice is that there are other directors, there are other films that have got these great reputations, as you mentioned, that I haven't touched. So bear yeah. in mind, I've never really seen any John Waters before or my knowledge of horror is, is scant at best. Um, I haven't seen any Clive Barker or anything like that. So I know there's a whole deluge of this stuff out there waiting for me still. This is what I said, you know, I mean, I'm same as you, we're just selecting stuff that we've personally seen. Um, and when we go into the, the listeners feedback in a minute, you're going to go, Oh my God. Actually, there's a couple that you have seen, Charlie, and, and you're going to kick yourself on one of them in particular. Right. Okay. Is that your final one or is that number three for you, mate? That was my final that one because fine. we both had, uh, irreversible, exactly. didn't we? Exactly. Right. Okay. My final one. It was a TV movie. Um, I think you know where I'm going with this, but it was theatrically released by the BFI briefly a few years ago. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. It was first screened in 1984. I was 15 years old. It was um, the height of the Cold War. Okay, people always say, oh, God, 1962 with the Cuban Missile Crisis was the closest we'd ever come to total annihilation. Early 80s, we, as, as a young, impressionable teenager, I was living in fear. I honestly thought that the end of the world would happen at any day. And in 1984, the BBC showed... A whole season of films. They re-showed a film called The War Games, which was from the 60s, which had previously been banned and not seen since. Which Was uh, that the one that was made round here? Yeah, filmed in Chatham, down the brook. Yeah. Yeah, and at the dockyard and stuff like that. That wasn't screened for 20 years, and they got this special permission to screen it again. It was about the time that When the Wind Blows was made. Um, yeah. Frankie Goes to Hollywood, Two Tribes, you know, this whole thing about total destruction we had the protect and survive yep wasn't the video reagan and and um was it andropov at the time i don't think it was called sumo wrestling match that's it that's it and we had the protect and survive leaflets came through the door and the adverts were shown these public information films about what to do you know about take the uh take the doors off their hinges and make yourself a makeshift shelter and fill the bath full of water and if somebody dies in the house make sure you put a tag on them and put them outside honestly it was frightening Mental. yeah yeah so in the midst of all this the bbc <laughs> after the nine, <laughs> after the nine o'clock news on the wednesday night <laughs> I know. yeah i know what we'll show we've made this original drama feature length thing and it was called threads yes I've heard of it, yeah. it's notorious now um Yes, it it depicts what would happen if the UK, um, particularly Sheffield, was hit by a nuclear attack. And it's done... About tennis worth of damage. About tennis worth of damage, exactly. (laughs) A quick paint job and a few screen doors. It's one of those films... Now, bearing in mind, what's 1984? 30-plus years ago? Uh, 30... Three years ago. Yeah. I can't go back to it. It left such an indelible impression on me that I thought we were all going to die at any point. And if this was the way we were going to die, 
I was even planning that if, if the bomb struck the next day, where would I find a gun? You know, I was going to kill myself. It was honestly, mate, because it was done sort of semi-documentary style, it, it picked on a particular family. It focused on them and, and, and how futile this whole protect and survive information was, you know, because there's no way that your, your door to your living room is going to protect you from a nuclear blast. Painting your windows white is not going to reflect all this radiation. It's, it's the powerlessness of yeah. it, I guess. I can't, I can't relate to this kind of thing because it was, it was before I was born. Mm. But I know with threats in particular, everyone who speaks of that film yeah. describes it as the worst thing they've ever seen. Yeah. Um, because because it, it it's just it was just far far too close to the bone. Really, it was it was um, it, it could have ha- it could have actually taken place, and also it had the one of the things that we often aren't um, lucky or should I say um, unfortunate enough to kind of to get really in in Britain is is depictions of stuff happening in towns like Sheffield and, and Manchester you know this yeah. this brought it to a domesticated kind of level of intensity as well brings it home mate exactly I mean at the same time the Americans released a TV movie called The Day After with Jason Robards and that had the same effect over in the US but with this I don't think people were prepared for what the aftermath would be they just thought alright the bombs would go off a bit like the blitz you know and then we'll all come out whistling and singing and do a bit of a clear up operation it all sort of develops into this depiction of well it's just chaos but that chaos then becomes despair because then what it does it doesn't just focus on the first few days after the attack we then go long term it focuses on right. a couple of months and even years afterwards. It, it it jumps towards the end. It jumps forward two or three years where, you know, we've all heard these stories that if a bomb was to go off, there will be this nuclear winter that will plunge the earth into darkness for God knows how long. God, yeah. yeah. I mean, it's, it's starting to kind of creep back into the realms of possibility now as well. And yeah, that's... Uh, exactly. <laughs> it's, but it's, it's also this thing. I mean, what gets me about threads even as somebody who hasn't seen it is you sort of touching it a minute ago mm. just how ill judged it seemed as a project really at, at the time usually things that wouldn't have depict the atrocity or horrors of something will wait until there's a decent a, a decent level of distance from yeah. the matter whereas they're making this right in the thick of that it intensity it was smack bang in the middle of all of this this fear and as I say, it was... What's the upshot of this? Like, what was... Well, the, the film ended, right, that after a couple of years, the, the whole... Well, Sheffield in particular, where it was focused on that particular area, as I say, it sort of reverts to some sort of medieval age. Brilliant. Because there's no electricity, there's no food. There are, there are people fighting, like diseased people, fighting over diseased livestock. Well... Uh, I guess Thatcher would have been happy with that. <laughs> <laughs> but, it, but to make it worse, the, the final scene, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to bite with your comments on, on Margaret now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, the final scene is, this is never going to get any better because yeah. the girl that we followed throughout gives birth and the baby's deformed. Again, sort of harking back to a bit of the razor head here. Yeah, um, yeah, nice little segue. Yeah, um, which I didn't realise until I said it. Um, 
I'm tempted to watch this. Do you know but, what? You know what? If you want to, I will. I will bite the bullet. It's one of those ones, as I say, that left such a mark on me as a kid. Yeah, and I think I, I can't see anyone having viewed that at the time and, and not being affected by it. I yeah. think that's totally understandable, mate. Um, but the, the thing that keeps coming back to me with this is like, what's the best that the BBC thought that could happen with this? Like, what, what were they trying to achieve? Well, I think if it was from a point of view that it was to educate people, because in, in a way it did. It educated me for sure, because again, I was one of those people that just thought, yeah, the bomber go off and, you know, it will all be fine after, you know, a few weeks, it'll all be back to normal. Be like a, a, a terrorist kind yeah. of situation where it's, it's appalling, but life eventually goes on. Exactly. But that it's not given a chance to. There is no yeah. way that we would ever recover from anything like that. And I think they repeated it not so long afterwards, and I couldn't watch it. I did buy it. I bought it on DVD. Again, it's sitting here, gathering dust. I'm always kind of intrigued with things that, you know, I I might be wrong, but I think Smokey might have mentioned it the other week. Mm-hmm. Um, so like when, when people like yourself and Smokey and, and aficionados of, of the horror genre are still talking about something that they want to run a mile from, that kind of... I don't know. Is that, is that the, that is that the ultimate... side of me that thinks I've got to see this? Yeah, is that the ultimate aim of a horror movie? Is that the reaction that they are genuinely yeah. trying to create, that people will have that reaction that I had to Threads? If, 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 you, if you view Threads as a horror film, it is the ultimate in horror movies because it absolutely petrified me. And yet it is so real yeah. and so kind of immediate to the viewer at the time. That's totally possible as well. I don't think I'm going to be able to avoid it in a way. No, I don't think you can, mate. I think, I think we ought to uh, to have a little look at that in the new year, possibly, just to cheer us up a little. Yeah. <laughs> See, if things haven't actually kicked off by then as well. Oh yeah, that's it. There, yeah, there we go. Yeah, we'll have a themed episode as the first bomb hits Korea. Um, <laughs> do you want to hear what our listeners have been saying about disturbing movies? Absolutely, okay, yeah. lots and lots of fantastic feedback from all the guys out there thank you very much for taking the time to comment this is exactly the reaction we wanted i'm going to start at the top i put this out on facebook that we were going to be looking at a few disturbing movies we wanted your you know your thought for for this new feature we're doing top of the list dan dan howells hi mate how we doing dan has got four for us charlie and the first one you've seen it you haven't mentioned it i'm sure you've seen this come and see yeah, oh mate. <laughs> and in particular, he says the village scene. Village scene, yes. Another film that is very highly rated in the kind of cineast community. Yeah. Mid 70s, I think, late 70s. I thought it was possibly early 80s. 80s. Yeah. Yeah, possibly 80s. I saw this film about a year and a half ago, maybe yeah. longer. Yeah, I know you'd um, watched it and you told me to see it and I haven't yet. It's. It, it actually, it's um, it falls quite closely into probably the same kind of film as Fred's, where it is such a unnerving depiction mm-hmm. of the reality of war. Yes, um, it's got a nightmarish quality to it for sure, but at the same time, it's it's really kind of uh, real and um, immediate and 
harrowing. Um, yeah, I think that is a, a splendid sort of choice. Very good call, yeah. It's sort of moved to the top of my to-watch pile, obviously based on your recommendation of it, but also with Dan's just bringing it to light as well. So, yeah, I'm going to be looking at that one very soon. He also then says number two is put irreversible, the underpass scene. Yeah. Uh, number three, the turtle scene from Cannibal Holocaust. Oh, okay. Okay. As I say, we're going to get a few repetitions here, obviously, because there are some that strike home with a lot of people. Uh, and number four, I think you've seen it, is the greenhouse scene in Scum. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> pretty barbaric, that. Especially yeah. when you've got the screw looking through the window just smirking. Yep. Yeah, that that is vile. I think Scum was a film that I was told that it was shown in schools at a sort of like late secondary age as mm. if to say you know this is what can happen not not literally saying you'll get bummed in a greenhouse but like <laughs> um this is the kind of thing that awaits you if you're gonna go down that road go down that road yeah, yeah. um so i think it was supposed to be partially instructive but also critical of the prison system as well was it alan clark it was Alan Clark, I believe, wasn't it? And yeah. it was, yeah, it's the whole system of the, the Borstals um, before they become what they're now, youth offender institutions or something. They're now known as. So. Scum was possibly the first film that I watched that left that kind of devastation, mm. really. Uh, yeah. Because it's, it's got such a, uh, a, a downbeat ending as well. Yeah, there's a couple of really sort of downbeat parts to the whole the whole film that was originally uh, a BBC sort of play for today I believe Alan Clark wrote it for the BBC and then it got the big screen right. adaptation which is the one we're more familiar with with Ray Winston you know okay and then Dan finishes off he says I've seen most of the nasty ones but these are the ones that really shocked me when I first saw them that's that's a very good selection there Dan thank you very much mate I spoke about him earlier Adam our dear friend Adam from the Outer Boy Clarence podcast Barracks, mate. Here we go. Barracks, mate. Exactly. Yes, that's how it forever be known. Um, here we go. He's number one. He's put the rape scene in Irreversible. Two. Yep, two. He's put Itchy the Killer, the scene with the hooks. <coughs> okay, well, I know what that scene is, but I haven't seen it. Number three, Salo. In particular, everything. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a... That's the thing. The whole film is is pretty brutal, but there is there is like a crescendo, as yeah. I say. But yeah, the whole thing is worthy of appearing on the list. Oh god, yeah. And <laughs> his number four is brilliant. He's put the first wives' club for number four. Oh, um, <laughs> isn't that um, Meryl Streep? It's or sounds Diane like Keaton. It sounds Diane like Keaton. Ensemble cast of yeah, yeah. Yeah. Is it like Diane Keaton I think, as well? Or? I think it is, mate. Yeah, it's that sort of thing, and that's that does sound disturbing. Anyway, the the fact that we can't remember it just just sums that up completely. Sex and the City Two levels oh, of disturbing. Dear Lord, no, thank you. Ah, oh, dear. Armin Armin Heinecker has put in an excellent idea, guys. The first scenes that come to mind are number one, the tongue cutting scene in Old Boy. Yeah, <laughs> it's got to be there, hasn't it? Someone had to mention that, of course. This one. Now, the more I think about this, the more I'm thinking, oh, this should have been possibly on my list because <sighs> Saving Private Ryan, the painfully slow stabbing scene. Now, I don't really remember it. Is that um, the bit with a sniper? And 
I don't know if it's Vin Diesel or somebody grabs the guy and to keep him quiet he puts his hand over his mouth and he's slowly stabbing him isn't he through his lungs or something like that just to keep him quiet I'm sure that's that scene it's either him or Barry Pepper I can't remember maybe I don't remember it but obviously I remember there was a certain amount of content in Saving Private Ryan that was oh god unsettling yeah yeah, I'm sure that's that's where it happened in the, the scene with the sniper. Number three, I don't particularly find this disturbing, Armin, but I'm glad you've included it. It's the redneck rape scene in Deliverance. Yeah, it's it's weird, actually. I think he's right. I think it is disturbing. But yeah. I think because it's mocked so often, that neutralises it. But when you're actually watching the film, yeah, it's, it, it's one of those. It, it's like... Um, you know, because all the, the kind of squeal, piggy squeal, and you've got a pretty mouth boy, that's entered yeah. like, pop culture, sort of mythology, uh, not mythology, like mm. it's, yeah. it's legendary in, in that sense. Yeah. And uh, it's almost like a defence mechanism for people. Yeah, the, the impact of it like, has been sort of... It's, out of it. it's not actually Ned Beatty getting Part done up the arse yeah. like, by a red Yeah, yeah it's, been, it's been sort of watered down by those sort of um, pastiches of it. Yeah. Yeah. A bit like there was a, a scene in, there was a sketch in Little Britain where uh, David Williams constructed a musical adaptation of Scum <laughs> and was singing Don't Go in the Greenhouse. Don't Go in the Greenhouse. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. But then a lot of these, again, I based my my list on my reactions at the time as well. Um, certain things may not disturb me on a second or third viewing, but that first viewing will remain with me. Like I say, Fred, for example, is, is the prime prime example there. Of course, yeah. And Armin finishes with his number four. I don't think you've seen this. Um, it could have appeared as a as a an honourable mention for me. Uh, it's Bone Tomahawk, and it's the kill that takes place in the cave. Is that the Kurt Russell yeah. Western? Yeah, I won't yeah. say anything if you haven't seen it. Please watch it. That's all I will say. I will do. Okay. Those that have seen it have not forgotten. And and Ben, our friend Ben Taylorson, just chips in on Facebook with the cave scene in Bone Tomahawk. Great call. Okay. And Ben himself, in no particular order. Number one, most of I Spit on Your Grave, the original. Yeah. I, I haven't seen that. That was like one of the classic video nasties, wasn't it? Again, yeah, the same sort of era as Texas Chainsaw Massacre. It's got this grimy quality to it. Ben has highlighted, although he said like most of I Spit on Your Grave, but in particular the scene in the bath. Now, those that have seen it will obviously know what that scene is. But again, with Irreversible, because of the subject matter and it's a rape-revenge movie, it is just... Yeah disturbing again it's that word that's that's the whole point of this conversation it is the disturbing element of it and i fully agree with that and even the remake was was just as disturbing i think this one you've seen ben puts for his number two silence of the lambs the scene where Hannibal lecter night sticks the guard to death in the cell yeah that's that's a good mention because a lot of the a lot of the discussion about silence of the lambs being disturbing is often related to the buffalo bill character isn't it yeah yeah, the thing that makes that disturbing is is you don't sort of see him receiving the beating. It's all focused on Lecter's face, isn't it? And the blood splattering up on him, and and the music. There's the classical music in the background, and he just sits back and just takes it all in. It's that's the disturbing part of it, I think. That that's always quite effective in films. We spoke of how 
like the uh, rape scene in Irreversible is disturbing because you can't turn away from it and it, the camera is focusing on it. Yeah. But alternatively, sometimes when stuff happens off camera, it can actually leave a lot to the imagination and make it worse. So um, I never realised until we saw The Godfather on the big screen mm-hmm. uh, how uncomfortable... I mean, it is uncomfortable in a way, but it's a lot more intense. The scene where Connie is being beaten up by her husband in the apartment. Yes, that is so and realistic. And he into the bathroom. Yeah, because... The, you and know, that is, because you're not seeing what's happening in there, you kind of have to imagine it almost, and it really is effective. You get the briefest of glimpses in the broken mirror, don't you, of the belt coming off and... and That's right. Yeah, yeah, exactly, mate. It's the imagination's a powerful bloody weapon, mate. Um, said this before about things like Scarface, where you know you don't actually see the chainsaw rip his friend apart, yeah. but the suggestion is there. Oh God, yeah, and the aftermath as well. That's the thing, you know. You, you see the aftermath of some of these things. It's just as disturbing. Ben's number four is also from Bone Tomahawk, and I'm just going to say what he's written here: hip flask in the hip. Watch the film. Okay. 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 Yep. Uh, dear friend Smokey, also from the Rated H podcast, not in any order, just what came to mind. One and two are both from Irreversible, the rape scene and the fire extinguisher scene. He's put those as yep. one and two. Standard. This one cracked me up. Number three, and again, this probably sort of relates to films that disturbed you when you first saw them at a certain age, but then again, this could probably still be disturbing him now for all I know. Superman 3, the woman turning into a robot scene. Oh, I've not seen it. <laughs> I watched it quite recently, actually. Yeah. Although, obviously, Christopher Reeve turned into a robot as well, so... I'll leave that there, you bastard. <laughs> oh, I hate you sometimes. <laughs> Fucking... One of my heroes. Um, this one this one you've seen, it'll make you laugh. And this, this is typical Smokey. Number four... One of the most disturbing scenes in cinema history. Keith Allen's penis in Shallow Grave. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's um it's a film that I watched in probably the last six months or so. Yeah. Uh Danny Boyle's debut. It was indeed, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and it's like in the first fifteen minutes, isn't it? They they walk into the room and just discover him there is his dead naked body on the bed with his <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I sort of replied. I said, uh, "Keith Allen's penis in anything is disturbing." Quite frankly, and and Smokey replied. Yep. He replied, "It was either that or the amount of feces in Hunger, which is the Michael Fassbender, um, Bobby Sands, yeah, Hunger Strike movie." Uh, but oh, okay. I haven't seen that. No, I haven't, but I'm, I'm aware of it. And he's put, "But Keith's member one." It's. <laughs> um, it's- yeah, it's it's a strange one because I think when you watch a film, you don't really expect to be disturbed that early on. And it's not a massively disturbing film, Shallow Grave, but that was definitely a bit of a shock. Yeah. <laughs> Keith Allen, who was, it was probably more sort of known for comedy at the time, you know. Um, the instrument that produced Lily. Yes, there. they're there for the whole world to see. <laughs> um... We're going to move on. We've got a few more to quickly rattle through. Tyler, Tyler Kennedy. Hello, mate. Thank you for getting in touch. Tyler's four are number one, The Girl Next Door. Now, I haven't seen it. I'm pretty sure you probably haven't, mate, but 
it's from about 10 years ago um jack ketchum novel okay um pretty sort of notorious for very disturbing sort of subjects um this one is oh what it's about it's is a teenage girl who's abused tortured basically by her aunt but the, the one of the more disturbing aspects of the film is that there's boys that witness it and fail to do anything about it so again it's got that kind of domestic kind of immediate horror to it rather than anything that's particularly fantastic yeah could could happen anywhere at any time sort of thing good call because the ketchum stuff is is quite disturbing so yeah that's number one tyler mentions come and see again at number two but he's got two scenes here mate he's got the village massacre which we've already mentioned but he's also pointed out the scene with the burned old man blaming the boy yeah that's that's not really fresh in the memory okay um, we're gonna have to go i think back. It's, it's a bit of a assault that film though so there's loads there and i remember it again being quite trippy and almost psychedelic at points come and see definitely one that we'll have to review i think i'm definitely looking at it mate it's gonna be sort of say bumped up my list of things to watch now tyler's picked another gasper noe film for number three which i haven't seen it's called i stand alone now this bit sounds really cool actually (laughs) the disturbing part of the film that sounds really cool i think we've got to see this just for the the way this is laid out Tyler's written, I stand alone. The scene is prefaced by, you have 30 seconds to leave this film. Must come up on the screen, okay? What actually makes it work is semi-telegraphing where it's going. Puts up the placard, followed by a jump cut. And just as you're wondering, wait, did what I think just happen, happen? Oh. Noe hits you with the one thing to make it worse. I'm intrigued. I'm sorry. There's no way that I can be informed of that and not see it. I stand alone. Bear with me, Tyler. I'm just punching this into IMDb. I'm I'm appreciative of the fact that he hasn't spoiled it as well, so I think I owe it to him yeah. to actually give it a, a watch. Okay, it's 1998, Gaspar Noé film. Same director as Irreversible, obviously. I'll just read the synopsis and we'll just... I think we'll dip into this at some point, mate. It just says, A horsemeat butcher's life and mind begins to break down as he lashes out against various factions of society while attempting to reconnect with his estranged daughter. It sounds a lot like falling down, then. <laughs> could be. It bloody could he's, be, mate. He's, Part of his reason for going mental is that he can't see his daughter, isn't it? Yeah. But obviously, a lot worse. Oh, there's another st- sort of storyline here. The butcher has done some time in jail after beating up the guy who tried to seduce his teenage mentally handicapped daughter. Now he wants Fuck. To, right, yeah, we go exactly. Now he wants to start a new life. He leaves his daughter in an institution and moves to the suburbs of Lille with his mistress. She promised him a new butcher's shop. She lied. The butcher decides to go back to Paris and find his daughter. I'm intrigued. I am. Yeah, I'm watching. I'm watching this okay I stand alone mate it's called from 1998 we might not do an official review but if we both watch it before the next show I think it might be worth having a little chat about that one okay yeah Yeah. thanks Tyler that's really superb but his last his last one that I did see years ago and I can't remember too much about and even Tyler said this is super tough I'm going to make an unusual pick here but he's choosing Henry portrait of a serial killer Um, the scene is chosen is a scene that shows nothing 
simply a suitcase at the edge of the road as Henry drives off. I tend to be affected by psychological scenes more than straight gore, and that is when you realise Henry pissed all of his redemptive moment and he's going back to doing what he does. Have you seen the film? No, no. It should have been on my list, mate, because it's another one that I remember at the time that I don't want to go back and watch. It was massive. I think I'm just going to have a marathon of all of these. Yeah, I think you're going to have to sort of do them all in one day just to get them over and done with, because if you spread this out, your your, your life will be fucked forever. Yeah, it is, but even more so. <laughs> Tyler, thank you very much for those, mate. Uh, so good friend Michael Glasper is up next. We love Michael. Hello, mate. How you doing? Oh. <laughs> Here we go. Number one and number two. Ah, right. Okay. Michael's Michael's picked from the same film again for one and two. It's from the American Werewolf in London. The initial werewolf attack on the Moors. Yeah, pretty. Uh, brutal. I guess a lot of people watch that at an age where they're not really supposed to as well, and it, it as a bit of a. This is this is what Michael says. He, he says the initial werewolf attack and the transformation scene in American Werewolf, seen for the first time when I was about twelve. So that's what exactly. exactly. Yeah. Number three is a bloody good call as well. Uh, again, I don't know why we didn't sort of shout this out, mate. The end of the Wicker Man. Oh no, Jesus Christ! Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Sorry, that was that was an appalling impression of Edward Woodward. Um, it is, yeah. I mean, it is when you. When you take away all the kind of reputation of the film and what happens before, what actually happens at the end is is barbaric. Well, Michael's actually put number three, the end of the Wicker Man. They actually fucking burned him to death. <laughs> yeah, and this it's again, it's one of those typical seventies kind of nihilistic endings where there's no kind of redemption and it's always it's inevitable that it's going to be ending on a sour note yeah yeah um, how many protagonists just get killed in 70s films is it's unreal yeah yeah well that's one sort of trope that we've noticed 70s films were not afraid to go down that road mate because although he was a fucking goody two shoes so he deserved it yeah <laughs> have a beer you daft cunt and finally Michael's number four Again, it's another one that I watched in the 90s and I don't want to go back and watch it. It's Man Bites Dog. Now, if I remember rightly, I think it was Belgian and it was done almost as a, um, not a found footage, but a, a sort of a documentary style thing. And it took on the guise of a documentary crew filming this serial killer going about his day-to-day business, if I remember rightly. And I think it was filmed in black and white, which when we talk about Eraserhead, again adds to the sort of disturbing nature of any movie as far as I'm aware in particular Michael's pointed out the rape stroke murder scene this was 20 years ago I don't think I could watch this film now right again similar sort of sentiments can I just say thank you to everybody that chipped in there that is quite encouraging actually to get some feedback from you guys to know that you're not only listening but you are actually sort of taking part here with us we're going to carry on with this mate aren't we we've got four plays going to be a regular thing definitely thanks very much to everyone who sent stuff in yeah so with that in mind do you want to know what we're going to talk about next time in four play yes please okay yes please yes please it's sort of related pretty much to the theme that's been running through our conversation over the last hour or so mate not necessarily films that you won't go back and watch again, you know, because I've already said Threads was yeah. one, but I'm, I'm pretty sure we are going to watch that. 
we we touched on this a couple of weeks ago when we met up, mate, and had a little chat. I want you, Charlie, and all you guys out there to come up with four examples of a film or an actor or actress, director, whatever, but mainly it's a film that you have no intention of watching. No my, my list would be endless. But yeah, yeah that's, that's a, a good topic, I think. Yeah, I mean, if I was to offer you a £1,000 an hour to watch this particular movie, you would say, no, it's all right, mate, I really don't want to see that film, for whatever reason or, it may be, mainly... Or even if you were giving me a grand, it would still feel like a chore kind of thing. Yeah. Um, the way I'm sort of going to describe it is is, is one of your favourite sayings, Charlie, is that you would rather lick piss off a stinging nettle than watch this movie. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And it doesn't necessarily have to be a movie. It could be one of the cinematic universes if you want to tie them all in together. So I'm sure you've got a few ideas there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It could be a director's particular body of work or one particular film. It could be any film starring John Wayne. You know, if you're a big sort of hater of John Wayne, you know, anything like that. So a, a white male, basically. <laughs> yeah, there you go. <laughs> anything, okay, that you can actually put together under the under the heading of uh, no, I will not watch that. Okay. Okay. So that's foreplay for next time. We're going to take a short break. We're going to play the trailer for a Razorhead and chat all things David Lynch after this. Razorhead, uh, made in 1977, as you said earlier, Charlie, released in the USA on the 3rd of February 1978, directed by David Lynch, starring Jack Nance, Charlotte Stewart, Alan Joseph. Synopsis, please, sir. Henry Spencer tries to survive his industrial environment, his angry girlfriend and the unbearable screams of his newly born mutant child. Sounds a cheery little number you've selected for me this week, mate. It's weird because it's a second watch for me and I don't even remember there being this kind of narrative arc, if you can even call it that. <laughs> well, straight off the bat, mate, I'm, I'm going to be honest, I, I struggled a little with this one. It, it took a lot of hard work for me to, to focus, to get into this. To I'm not saying I didn't enjoy it because that is exactly the point here. I did enjoy it, but... My God, this is totally different. This is not a film that I would pick to sit indoors on a Saturday evening and watch out of choice, put it that way. That's, um, I think that's a fair assessment. I think... Um, I haven't even started I, yet. <laughs> well, even when I've heard positive things about the film, I don't think I've ever heard the kind of words uttered that that's a great film, I really enjoy that film. There's always like aspects that people take out of it and say, I really admire that, mm -hmm. or this film is really important because... So um, I was talking to uh, Neil, who I work with, who yeah. does the excellent uh, The Likes of Us podcast as yep. well. Yeah, He said there are just some films that you've got to watch and say, you know, I've seen that now. Yes, that's exactly and what I mean. 
Yeah. Um, they're, like, they're like an important part of your, your status as a fan of film, but that's about it. I think my mistake was that I made that decision far too early. I tried watching this way, way back, 1982, 83, something like that, when... Video what, drive. Yeah, I don't know if it was Videodrome, it might have been Channel 4, not too sure at the time, but it was at that time where my film tastes were sort of developing, you know, I know I loved old classic Hollywood stuff, that was forever going to be there, but when Channel 4 was showing all this edgy stuff, which they don't show anymore, you know, it's where I discovered Peter Greenaway, you know, The Cook, The Thief, His Wife, I Love, all those right. sort of things, and it's as quite rightly that Neil said that it's one of those films that you feel you have to watch if you want to develop a knowledge of, of cinema as a whole. And yeah, it's it is it's sorry, go on. It's, no, it's hard because it sounds like we're doing the film a disservice. Yeah, we, yeah. But, this will develop in the conversation that I thought I'd watch this, and, and watching it last night, I realised that I think I probably only watched half of it back then. I may have given up on it. It's just yeah. one of those films that I remember watching, but in reality. I saw parts of it, and my 13-year-old brain wasn't strong enough to cope with what was being presented to me. <laughs> it probably wasn't strong enough last night, if truth be told. <laughs> I think um, I think there's there's quite an accurate description of the film that I read in a Guardian article that was sort of discussing the 40th anniversary. Mm. And they said that, you know, there are two types of people, people who haven't seen a ways ahead and people who have, or, or not not so much in that way. They were saying, you're you're a different person once you've <laughs> seen the way the heads of the person you were prior to it. I read a review somewhere that said, oh, what was it? Uh, you don't realise how disturbing this film is until you try to describe it to somebody. Yeah, but also on, on the uh, reverse of that, I think if you describe it to someone, you can actually make it sound a little bit more kind of narratively structural than it is because what we've got is a film about a man who finds out that his girlfriend is pregnant gives birth to a deformed baby and he's got to cope with the aftermath of that that actually makes it sound like a fairly kind of um, slice of life <laughs> um, you, you know maybe, maybe like he's got to overcome this adversity and he one day will learn to love this child, but it's it's not like that at all. It, it just sort of like oh, it's just not. flows from dreamlike scene to dreamlike scene, and you, you just you've never actually witnessed anything like this before. Yeah, that's a perfect summing up, mate. Um, I'm going to revert to the plot as described on Wikipedia to try and make some sense of this. Good luck. Yeah, and I'm going to need you to chip in here. Yeah. Okay. Um, now, don't get me wrong. I, David Lynch is a 50-50 director for me. There are certain movies that I get on with and I adore, Elephant Man being the top of the list for me. The jury's probably still out on Blue Velvet for me, but Wild at Heart I liked. You know, a few of the others. And there's something I haven't seen. This is, I know this is something different. That's, that's obvious from the bloody start, you know. And... <laughs> I know film is supposed to be designed it's the perfect medium for expressing creativity and and being a bit edgy but this as I say took a little bit of work for me and even reading this plot now I still don't know if I get what was trying to be said 
don't know if I'm supposed to get what's trying to be said. Ah, uh, yeah, that that is a discussion in itself, mm. I think. And when we come to kind of summing the film up, I'm going to give two reasons as to why I think the film deserves not necessarily huge acclaim, yep. but why I can sort of defend it, if that makes sense. Yeah, I've heard. But we'll one get of, on to that later. Yeah, I've heard one of the. Um the sort of metaphors or the reasoning behind this whole movie. I've, I've read something about, you know, what it's supposed See, to represent. So I, I think we can talk about that before we go into the plot. I'm not convinced that there is a lot of symbolism here. I think one of the debates that people have about a Razorhead is, oh, what does the film mean? What yeah. is it trying to say? That is assuming that the film is actually trying to say anything. Yep. There doesn't always have to be symbolism. You know, it doesn't have to be, uh, referring to something subliminally or subconsciously, I, I honestly think that films can just operate on their own kind of basis and they don't have to be filled with metaphors. And personally speaking, I, I think A Razorhead is an example of that. So it's just a piece of art. It's an art form. Uh, yeah, in my opinion. Just done in a very unique way, in a David Lynch way. I think we could probably have this argument about David Lynch's body of work in general. Yeah, as I said, it's, it's bizarre because we sort of mentioned briefly off air, there are elements of David Lynch that are common throughout pretty much all of his movies. You you could pretty much recognise a David Lynch movie just by, you know, seeing it. You know, you, you know that that's a Lynch movie. This is obviously where it all starts from. This is 1977. Is it true that this took about five years for it to actually sort of gestate? That's a good word it to did. use, actually, yeah. <laughs> a very good word to use. It did. And um, there were sort of financial implications to that. Uh, obviously, you can imagine that, that a lot of people would have been a bit reluctant to fund something like this. And also, Lynch had to rely on the kind of loyalty of the people he'd enlisted, even on a casting level. So I believe that Charlotte Stewart was married to Jack Nunce in real life. Right, and do you know who uh, was married to Jack Fisk? Gets a, no. Gets a mention on the credits. I had to look this up. Um, ties in exactly with what you're going with here. One of the credits at the end, special thanks to Sissy Spacek. Sissy Spacek oh, was married well, to Jack okay. Fisk, who is the man in the planet, as I've just discovered he was, you know. So. And Sissy Spacek appeared in the straight story a lot. There you go. A lot further down the line in Lynch's career and I guess the reason why I sort of bring this up is because you get this sense of a loyal community that made this film that needed to be there for Lynch when it looked like the project was probably going to go down the pan. Yeah, she actually pro uh, provided a little bit of the financial backing apparently as well. And it isn't Charlotte Stewart, the lady with the log as well. I is think, that the log lady? Twin Peaks. Is that the log I lady? I think it is, yeah. I hope yeah. it is because I just said to you literally seconds ago, I didn't realise that Jack Nance was the guy in Twin Peaks. Oh, my God. Well, I only made that connection because I've been watching Twin Peaks recently yeah. and I kept seeing the name Jack Nance in the credits and then obviously I saw this and looked it up. But yeah. um, the, there's not a lot of resemblance there, is there, either, even though it's only about 13 years apart. Exactly. exactly. So I, I, I watched it and, and loved Twin Peaks back in 1990 whenever it was um, didn't put two and two together and and you've just actually sort of you know done it again with the log lady as well so, yeah, yeah fantastic um, how are we going to do this shall I start with this sort of plot summary and, and we sort of pick the bones out of it because 
I think so. To rely, yeah, to rely on the synopsis is going to give a completely false impression of this film to anybody. And even re- looking at this first paragraph, mate, I mean, it's just incredible. Right, the man in the planet, played by Jack Fisk, pulls levers in his home in space, while the head of Henry Spencer floats in the sky. This is how the film opens. A giant spermatozoan-like creature emerges from Spencer's mouth, floating into the void. The man in the planet appears to control the creature with his levers, eventually making it fall into a pool of water. Yeah. Right. That's how the film opens. That takes a good five or six, seven minutes, something like that. And that's the first thing that hits me with this film. Until we get to the scene with the dinner, the lunch scene, the chickens... This film, which we will talk about, this film takes its time. It's very content in just taking a step back and just letting things unfold very, very slowly. There were no opening credits other than the actual title of Razorheads. And up until that um, scene at the girlfriend's house, you are kind of worrying whether is this not even going to be structured whatsoever like is it literally just going to be a series of images on yes. the screen on the blu-ray there's a lot of the david lynch short movies that he did round about this time sort of six minutes seven minutes seven minutes long and you could almost picture those those short movies being edited together to make a one long eraserhead type movie because it is almost that sort of atmosphere and that sort of visualization that you get and it does it takes a good I don't know, when does the, the dinner scene sort of takes place? About 15, 20 minutes About in? 15, 20 minutes. I would say uh, what the opening of A Razorhead reminds me of, even though the kind of tone is different, is maybe something like eight and a half, where you're yeah. sitting and watching it and it is just this kind of collection of fragmented scenes that you're struggling to pin together. Yeah, and instantly for me, the connection with particular um, regard to the sound because you've got this industrial sort of thumping noise in the background, immediately sort of threw me over to Elephant Man because there was that in the background to the Elephant Man where you had this constant sort of hiss of the gas lamps and, and whatever was going on in the background. I don't think I needed to read it to make that connection because I think obviously this is his first film and Elephant Man is his second film. Yeah. But I'm pretty sure that Mel Brooks approached Lynch on the back of this film in particular and said I want you to direct The Elephant Man wow okay well that makes a lot of sense because you can see the similarities in the obviously the cinematography and the and the way the sound construction is, is put together um <laughs> but like thematically as well obviously The Elephant Man is about um a child being born with a deformity and that obviously crops up here as well of course of course. Again, I'm not, I'm not looking at connections in that respect, you know, but I'm, I'm sure that as the conversation progresses, we are going to get a lot of little things like this that we're going to say, oh, my God, well, yeah, that's, the, you know, no, we're not looking at metaphors and things like that. We're going to say, well, that relates to that, and that obviously is part of the, you know, so. There is there is another um, approach that was made to David Lynch on the basis of this film, which is pretty mind-blowing, actually, mm. to think that it was even suggested what that he direct the elephant man yeah lynch was approached after one of the initial screenings of razorhead yeah um well it actually would have been quite a while after george lucas approached david lynch 
and asked him about the possibility of directing um, Return of the Jedi. <laughs> okay. <laughs> That's fucking mental, isn't it? That is incredible. Oh, my God. Really? Yeah. I was listening to um, the guys from Adventures in Celluloids mm. review of a Razorhead, and they mentioned it on there, and they had a bit of a discussion as to what, you know, what possessed George Lucas to make that approach and as to whether, like, if Lynch did direct Return of the Jedi, whether he would have made it a Lynchian kind of film or would have just, you know, in the way that he did with the Elephant Man, kind of make it a lot more conventional. Wow. The thing I found out, I mean, that sort of, like, blown my mind a little. The one that blew my mind when I was sort of doing a little bit of research into this... Stanley Kubrick revealed to David Lynch that it was his fa- it was his, it was Kubrick's favourite movie. I read that as well, and uh, I'm I'm pretty shocked by it because <laughs> I guess the the only kind of sense I can pick out of that is that The Shining is the the closest film in yeah. Kubrick's catalogue after this, this is, and mm, this there is, is that kind of intensity to both of them. This is what I read. It was um, Kubrick screened it to the crew of The Shining and said this is the atmosphere I want to create but it's far more obscure than of course anything that Kubrick made maybe with the exception of the final act of 2001 of course yeah yeah but that is just bizarre that he said it was his favourite movie whether that was just of the time I did don't that, know yeah did that change because I've read a list of Kubrick's favourite films and they range from things like I don't know he talks about a razor head he talks about Fellini and then he'll mention stuff like Boogie Nights as well so yeah. I, I think he had a quite a, a broad range of, of films that he admired yeah you find you find that don't you I mean Scorsese's legendary for doing these lists of influential movies and, and you know the things that have been part of his movie going career you know a movie making career it just it just struck me as odd just the, the it's the same with any kind of art form, I think. If you want to be a musician, if you want to be a novelist, if you want to be a director, if you want to be a painter, you have to take in the whole gamut of that art form to yeah. really know what kind of artist you want to be yourself. Yeah. As I say, it just struck me as weird that he, he actually sort of declared this as his favourite film. Very bizarre. Um, let's move on to the... Um, the chicken scene. I mean, there's a there's a few bits leading up to it where he meets the girl across the hall, and the thing that got me, I can't work this bit out. Why is there sort of vegetation in the apartments? Why is there sort of like grass piled up everywhere? Right. So, so this is the kind of thing that leads people down that route of wanting to talk about symbolism. Go for it. And what, stuff. What, what's the theory? And the stuff. Well, what I've read and what I can sort of ascertain, if I was a sort of person who did believe that this was a symbolic film. Mm-hmm is that he's had this uh, deformed child with Mary X mm-hmm. and like the dead vegetation and all that is supposed to represent like a lack of fertility or like something wrong with the with the uh the process of okay. of that. Do you know what I mean? Like yeah. it's it's sort of it's reproduction or procreation, but not as it is meant to be. And that's why there's all this dead vegetation. But I'm really wary of pointing things like that out. So I think that might be going into it in a way that Lynch yeah. never intended you to. Yeah, it could just be that he just needed some set decoration and that was all that was handy. For he all just we wanted to make it look fucking weird, which yeah. is a lot more convincing, I'm, I think. I'm going to go with that. Lynch just wanted it to look weird. 
I'm, I'm, I'm quite happy to accept that explanation, mate, because... Someone knocking on your door? Can you hear that? Yeah. <laughs> no. It's not Marcus, is it? No. <laughs> it's not the lady in the radiator. That's what it sounded like. Oh. The, the the room that I'm recording in, dear listener, take a peek behind the curtain here. The room that I'm recording in is, is off of my bedroom. It's like a, a, a spare sort of room, like a box room. But next door, um, it's the equivalent of his bathroom, next door neighbour's bathroom. So God knows what he's fucking doing in there at the moment. That's frightening. Seems to have stopped. Especially the conversations we've been having about film moments earlier. Yeah. Oh, my God. I'm going to have to go and knock on his door and check he's okay later. No, fuck him. No, fuck him. Right. Uh, <laughs> so, goes around for lunch, dinner, at Mr. and Mrs. X, the father and the mother of the girlfriend. Before they even sit down for dinner, the girlfriend has this seizure on the sofa um, that she only sort of comes out of once the mother brushes her hair. Yeah. Yeah. It's... Things like that that I'd forgotten about on the on yeah. the uh, second viewing until they came up again. And then there's a part at the actual dinner table where the mother seems to have some similar sort of seizure after the chicken is carved. Um, talk about the chicken. We do. We just just get this out of the way now. Um, the father presents these half a dozen chickens that he says are about the size of your fist, but they're man-made. Okay. So you're thinking, man-made, what's this got to do with anything? Are we living in some sort of post-apocalyptic world where there's no animals now and everything's sort of synthetic? Are we on a different planet? Are we? Where? Where is this place, this whole universe where this sort of thing is accepted and normal? But again, don't dig too deep into it. We've got some man-made roast chickens. Yeah, I, I just think it's another example of something being presented without comment or explanation and, and that's that's about it really yeah i know but the, you can you can see my dilemma here that i'm i'm probably over analyzing it while i'm watching this you know me charlie i like to be entertained i like to watch a movie where i don't have to think too much and and it will just sweep over me and i'll think yeah that's a great movie that if i have to think about things too deeply then i start getting annoyed with myself if i don't get it i start thinking to myself am i stupid am i or is it as we've said previously, is it the Emperor's new clothes and I've just seen right through it and this is just a complete pile of shit and everybody else is seeing something magical and marvellous in a film that isn't actually there? Yeah, it's it's a real kind of uh, debate that can be had about art in general. I think we were having this discussion about um, art with Tom and Ant when we were on our way up to Adams, weren't we? Yeah, because I'd been to the Tate Modern and... Uh, some of the that's very similar sort of stuff that I saw at the Tate Modern Gallery could be included in a David Lynch film and quite rightly as you've pointed out when I was looking around the exhibits at the Tate Modern and reading the explanations as to what they were supposed to represent it didn't mean a thing you should just take them at face it's, take them at face value and make your own it's mind. that thing isn't it yeah it's like you know, there's that um, old adage that when people see modern art, they say, "My five-year-old could do that." Yep, I was or doing walk. that. I was walking around the whole the whole gallery with my niece, saying, "I could do that. I could do that." But then, <laughs> it depends what you want out of art. It depends whether you think art has to be representative of something, or whether it just evokes a, a, a kind of a reaction in you. And mm. I think if you 
if you go down that route of saying all art has to do is evoke a, re- a reaction, then Lynch is successful at what he does. Yeah. It doesn't have to be symbolic. It doesn't have to be political. It doesn't have to be, um, I don't know. It doesn't have, it can just exist on its own. And, and there's not necessarily anything wrong with that. Okay, so with that in mind, let's just talk this movie through as, as a visual, you know, work without trying to get too deep. We, we will sort of probably cut into the underbelly of this at some point, but there is this scene, and this is probably why the movie took a long sort of period of time to make based on the limited budget that he had, because there are some marvellous special effects. You know, the chicken scene is the first of them. And that is almost defining. Mm. People usually net up, don't know. It is, it is the one that, when you say a razorhead, they say, oh, the, the film with the chicken. Yeah. And then, I guess, after that, it's... I mean, I guess the baby is a character, or the yeah. thing is a character. Spike, they used to refer to it on set as. But, yeah. Yeah. Doesn't it kind of jump from that dinner scene through to when Mary is back at the one room apartment. Yeah, there's after the after the sort of chicken thing there's this really sort of bizarre little scene where they go outside of the dining room and and Spencer is sort of cornered by the mother who tries to kiss him. But then oh, re- yeah, yeah but then reveals that the daughter's pregnant and he's like, well there wasn't any sort of time. She said, No, it was premature and it's we're not even sure if it is actually human or such, you know. When are you getting married? And then it jumps back to his sort of like bedsit and she's trying to feed this thing that's wrapped up in in bandages a lot of swaddle swaddle is swaddle what a great word um and a lot of people sort of compared it to et but there's a scene later on where (laughs) where it gets bigger and it reminded me of the um remember the scene in jurassic park where the um they're hiding up the tree the very first Jurassic Park and the, yeah. the tree, and those dinosaurs come along and, and sneeze on them. That's right. Yeah, it looks very similar to one of those. Um, Do you know what I thought it looked like? Go on. Uh, the professional footballer John Joe Shelby. I don't know John Joe Shelby, and I'm sure there's our listeners. Google that. Google that, <laughs> and close um, to Newcastle, so he's he's not too obscure. Do you know what? That could be a new feature on the Facebook group. Switched at birth. We sh- I shall do that. <laughs> he really looks like John Chuck Sheldon. Okay, remind me of that later, mate. I'll put it on the Facebook group. <laughs> but this is that. This was the thing as well. Did did you read sort of doing any research about the sort of myths and the legends about the creation of this this creature? Not so much. Right. Which I should have done because it, mm, it was it's shrouded in secrecy. There's not a great yeah, deal about that, it. You know, sometimes when you Google a film mm. title, yeah. Sometimes a list of questions appear under the initial result. Oh, right, yeah. And, you know, the classic one is, what is a razorhead about? Mm-hmm. Uh, and then underneath that, there is, what was the baby in a razorhead made from? So there I'm guessing go. there's been a lot of discussion about it without it ever probably being divulged. Yeah, I mean, when Lynch was ever asked, he'd say, we just found it. You know, it was it was born under a gooseberry bush or something like that. You know, he was just very yeah. secretive about it. But... It was, I think it was The Guardian, funny enough, it was one of the big broadsheets, did this speculative piece that it was actually created from a lamb's fetus or possibly a skinned rabbit. Really? Yeah. And 
when you've got that now, that little piece of information, and then you go back and look at the actual thing itself, you think could be possible could be possible it's it's incredibly for the time for 1977 and the limited budget as i say it was it was a remarkable piece of of puppetry i i loved it it was great i think i mean it goes back to what we were saying about cannibal um holocaust earlier Mm. that if that is the case then that's really troubling yeah if it's a lamb fetus definitely yeah it was possibly the most visually kind of impressive part of the film because even with the chicken scene you can tell it's all like stop motion kind of stuff whereas this is i guess literally a, a living breathing character of its own it is because i say it's 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 like yoda you know it's 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 a realistic type puppet almost almost you know <laughs> but disturbing at the same time because in effect this is their child and they're yeah. trying to feed it and it's crying throughout and there's all these frustrations that are, most parents go through when a newborn is introduced to the house but then it's coupled with the fact that this thing is incredible looking it is, it's a marvellous piece of engineering <laughs> love it um, but she ends up leaving him I think is the next sort of sex sequence is that is she, she referred to as Mrs. X or something? Is it Mary X or something? Was uh, it Mary X? Mary X. Mary X. Yeah. Malcolm's. <laughs> Malcolm's mum. Um, so Jack Nancy's left to care for this thing, but and it starts getting very ill. It develops all these sort of like boils and and I don't know like sores all over its body and sores. It, yeah. Yeah. And its temperature reaches ridiculous levels, and it just it almost just happens out of nowhere doesn't it yeah and it sort of struggles to breathe and there's a frustration of him trying to keep this thing well but then we get these i'm assuming they're visions like hallucinations of of the lady behind the radiator i mean it's obviously what's real in this film and what's not again is another matter for for discussion but we're introduced to the lady behind the radiator Now, she's, the thing is, she's got bigger cheeks than me. She heavily has, and, and and if you were to look into this too deeply, that this is all about troubled childbirth and and, and the pressures of of rearing children and and you know deformities within that sort. Of, for her to have two giant testicles for cheeks is probably quite apt, <laughs> because that's what it fucking looked like. Um, it was. <laughs> I think. Part of me just threatens that he had some fun making this and he just wanted to give a few kind of clues as to what the symbolism could be without actually committing to it. Yeah. She's dancing. Almost as if he was laughing at our expense. Yeah. he. She's dancing on, on this sort of stage area. And this is a theme that recurs very often because, as you mentioned in Blue Velvet, there's this sort of like stage scene where the spotlight comes on and he's singing Roy Orbison. Twin Peaks famously features a lot of sort of stage scenes. Isn't there the uh, zigzag kind of design on the floor, which is also the design of the Red Room in Twin Peaks? In Twin Peaks as well, you know, so it's, it's all sort of yeah. linking together with regard to that. But bizarrely, you know, text- testicle-cheeked lady is there singing. <laughs> and... Must have got right on Terry Waits nerves. <laughs> <laughs> Chain to the radiator and you've got this thing behind it. 
so these these things start dropping out of the sky. Uh, she sort of like dances around them tentatively at first, but then starts squashing them, stomping on them. Yeah, and that's when it becomes. I think it's at that point that you start worrying about what else this film is going to throw up. Like, because you you see the chicken scene and you think, well, that's probably as bad as it's going to get. Mm. And this is like a continuation of it and you think this is going to start getting really sadistic now. Yeah. But again, it can only really be described as sort of nightmarish or dreamlike, something that you could feasibly see in a dream but not propose any kind of explanation for. Yeah. Now, as I said earlier, this is probably the closest thing I've ever seen on celluloid that comes to a dream or a nightmare. And you know when you try and think back over dreams you've had the previous night, they're made up of disjointed scenes that have no linking part to them. Well, everyone seems to think that their dreams go on for 90 minutes, but actually they're only ever a few seconds long, aren't they? And that's why they're always so fragmentary and, and jump from one location to another and they combine people that you know we know from film and tv and then people we know in real life it, it all becomes obscured um yeah. i think you're, i think you're absolutely right that this is the closest that cinema has probably got to being able to depict that and that's mm. another reason why i choose not to look too closely into symbolism as well because even when like psychologists say that, that dreams are wish fulfillment or repressed desires and things like that that's only a theory of yeah. what a dream is well, that's not knows. actually fact. Yeah. yeah nobody knows do they that's the thing where are we going to go with this i mean this, this the whole story progresses and as you say just when you think that the chicken scene and, and this bit of us stomping on these things is is probably the worst that's thing where the, that's where any, sorry sorry mate. yeah go on yeah go on uh, that, that's where any kind of narrative really ends because yeah. after or just before for the lady in the radiator scene everything is based on visions and dreams that uh henry spencer is having himself Mm -hmm. and it's not until like his head falls off and falls into the street that the locale even changes yeah (laughs) i'm just picturing that scene yeah yeah, the the head then turns into the, the head of the child lands on the street his head and it's found by a boy, and then he goes to a pencil factory. I'm, I'm getting this yeah. right, aren't I? It's a pencil factory to be turned into erasers, which is where the whole eraser head title comes from. So this is obviously still a dream, because he's still seeking out... He's got this beautiful neighbour that lives across the hallway. And just as you think the gore, or the, the disturbing nature of this whole film can't get any worse, um, I don't know why he decides to do this, but he, de- he decides to cut. The bandages, the child swaddling from his from his body. Yeah, uh, I mean, is that just him saying I've had enough of this, or it's in too much? Well, Does he know that that's going to kill it? Or? Yeah, it's, it's crying anyway. He's been rejected by the bird across the hallway because she's with another bloke, isn't she? So who looks like he belongs on a register? <laughs> Again, another level to this film that I don't want to go down. And as he's cutting these bandages, this this is just well. This is where I can see the um, the possibility that there was some real sort of genuine sort of offal and organs and stuff used here. But it, t- it turns out this this child has no skin. Its actual organs are held together by the bandage. Um, that yeah, that is that's really fucking horrible. It is, and and being in black and white, 
you think would lessen that impact a little because you're not seeing like red gore but it just makes it creepy it really does this is where the word disturbing kicks in and then for some reason he starts cutting into the organs with the scissors <laughs> is, is that like a mercy killing is that him knowing that the baby is never going to get better and yeah because it's it, sort of like the equivalent of wringing its neck yeah cause he knows it's in pain isn't it because he's crying his eyes out he's been rejected by the bird next door it's just like oh my god you know what we're going to do here it's just a whole series of helpless situations and and then this this goo just <laughs> just burst. it's like horseradish horseradish it reminded me of that expanding foam stuff as well it just it just just spreads and spreads and spreads and then I just uh, like I, you know, I I had sort of vaguely cogent things to say about this film, and as as we sort of get further into it, I'm just at a loss. Exactly, as as that reviewer pointed out, this film is not bizarre until you try and explain it. Um, if we'd yeah. have just stuck to that synopsis at the beginning, people might have accepted that. I'm, I'm not even going to go any further into this sort of narrative of, of this because it just becomes this series of little surreal events towards the end, you know, and um, we meet the guy on the planet again and the planet bursts and, and the eraser head becomes an eraser. You know, whatever. I don't, I don't fucking and understand. He, he, he ends up meeting the lady in the radiator in, in the yes. flesh. Yeah. Um, so who knows? Who knows what this film is about? Don't even go down there to try and work it out. But for people out there that are only aware of later more narrative lynch work i'm going to urge them if to you can call it that yeah because most of it doesn't have some sort of you know cogent narrative plot but go back and see this a for the sense of being a completist if you are a fan of david lynch's work also just to see where some of the influences for his later stuff actually came from yeah. Also, to meet a few of the people that will go on to be a lot more famous in his later work as well, like Jack Nance and, and Jack Fisk, you know, all of these guys. Seriously, I mean, are you a fan of this film? And if you are, what for what reason are you a fan of it? I actually am a bit of a fan of it. Right. Um, I do quite like it, not because it's necessarily an enjoyable experience. But what you were just saying kind of leads me to one of the points that will make me stick up for the film. Okay, this is the first point. Well, the first point is I can't think of a more striking, kind of powerful, representative first film from a director. Particularly, even if we look at like the auteurs or or the great names in cinema, Mm -hmm. uh, like Kubrick, not doesn't really kind of get going until about three or four films in. Definitely. To his career, definitely. Uh, Scorsese, um, Mean Streets is seen as the breakthrough, but, um, but it wasn't his first it. film. Yeah, uh, Spielberg. It's really kind of it's Jaws. I mean, Jaws. Yeah, yeah, I mean, Jaws is his is his true kind of arrival as Hollywood royalty. Who else could we name? Lucas. Uh, Lucas was sort of American graffiti, but it wasn't obviously until Star Wars. Um, I. Yeah, I looked into this. I looked into this, and I can't think, with one exception. Mm-hmm. In fact, I've I got came one. across. I've a, got one idea. Well, I came across a chart, mm-hmm. and it was like a, I think it was like the American Institute of Film, mm-hmm. and they they compiled a list of the greatest directorial debuts. Okay, and this was second only to Citizen Kane. Oh, of course. How could I forget that? I was going to say Reservoir Dogs. Reservoir uh, Dogs 
probably the only other example I can really think of where all the tropes, the cast, the tone, mm. the uh, impact is there. Usually it takes a director a while. And I think that um, speaks to the film's credit that Lynch was able to do that at the very beginning of his career. Definitely. Yeah, you've actually hit hit something there, mate. Um it's probably what the whole conversation has been leading up to, you know, no matter what you think of this film, you can't deny that it it's, is. It, it's, uh, it, it, what was the expression that I could use? It's, it kind of hits the ground running, I guess, even if you're not a fan of the film itself. Yeah. Lynch starts as he means to go on. Yeah. And I, I think he deserves applause for that. It's a, it's a good example of, of a pure dedication as well for him to actually stick with this for the, the five year period that it took for him to make this. I guess he, he had that benefit, I guess, because he stuck with it and it was a labour of love. It meant that it had to be, you know, yeah. a big thing for him. Whereas if uh, a lot of other uh, directors, I think, had to work on projects they weren't particularly enamoured with in order to fund or get the reputation that was required to actually go into filmmaking, yeah, this is a slightly different context. But the, the second reason is sort of similar. Hmm the way I will always stick up for the film is because it is, you know it's like a 100% kind of fulfilment of the vision that he wanted. Yeah. There's no compromise here. Like, this is exactly how we wanted it to look and feel and sound. And again, even if it isn't your cup of tea, I'd always admire someone who can put onto celluloid exactly what they intended to, visually, aesthetically, sound-wise... I just think it's it turned out exactly how Lynch wanted it to. I'm I'm assuming that, but I do think it's the case. Yeah, and it paid off. I mean, it just led to this this career that it, it, we've said this before. It's not very often that a director can say that they have got one outstanding piece of work in their in their canon. You can name three, four, possibly five of Lynch's movies that will be up there in the top one hundred. Quite and easy. it changes in, mm. in Lynch's career. I've noticed that at one stage it would have been Blue Velvet, possibly. Yeah. Um, a razor head, its cult is always kind of getting bigger and bigger. Mm-hmm. But now Mulholland Drive seems to have gone in It real. is Mulholland Drive. And do, you know, do you know what I think's bubbling under um, is The Straight Story. But that, that's a, a fantastic film, The Straight Story. But like mm. The Elephant Man, I, I see it as a little bit of a departure from mm. the usual tone if yeah. you can even try and gauge what the, t- what tone, the tone of any is. of his films is <laughs> exactly there, there is a more kind of conventional aspect to the straight story and the elephant man that isn't present in things like wild at heart and blue velvet and uh, is it uh lost highway lost highway is the other one yeah. yeah yeah for me personally i mean that this film certainly sums up the theme of this episode which is disturbing um yeah it's an uncomfortable watch, but at the same time, it's intriguing. I, I, I couldn't turn away from it. There, despite some of those periods of at the beginning of the movie where you think nothing is going on here and there is no narrative to this, it's a bit like the car crash on the motorway scenario. You know, you've you've got to keep watching. You've just you know because you, you, where's this going to go? And the more it developed, the more intrigued you are because. How's he going to top this? And he does successively, minute by minute. It just gets more and more surreal. It's certainly not for everybody. 
it's it's weird because it's not for everybody, but it's a film that I would tell everybody to watch. <laughs> Very good. Just so yeah. they can say I have seen a Razorhead. I think so. And, and finally, just in summing up, I think it's probably the only film or one of the very few films that I've watched for the full 90 minutes with a frown on my face and possibly my mouth wide open at the same time. Yeah. <laughs> it's, totally. it's, it's just one of those films. It's just this. I, I could picture myself watching it with this intense concentration on my face. I'd like to see other people's reactions to it, the watching it for the first time, actually, just to see what they're going through. I'd like to hear from people who just didn't have any time for it whatsoever like even though you struggled with the process of watching it you you took something away oh yeah um, do you know what i could not find one negative review every every review yeah. that i spotted praised it in one way or another there was no one saying what a pile of pretentious shit no one actually come up with anything like that everybody it's, everybody found something pretend- mm. sorry yes yeah, to say everybody found something in the film that they liked and admired but that's, I think it only becomes pretentious if you try and look into meaning and mm. representations and symbolism. If it is just meant to freak you out a bit and be nightmarish, then I think fair enough. It's only when like, it becomes evident that Lynch has said, yeah, this is symbolic of like anxieties over parenthood and stuff. That's when it starts to become a little bit up his own arse. Yeah. Yeah, but we don't know that's actually the case. No, no, I think he's denied some of those sort of um, those theories anyway that have been put to him because. I think, well, he had a child not long before the film was released. So was it before bit... or just after? Because Jennifer Lynch is in the movie as the girl. Yeah, and it's also well documented that she had to have a series of operations. She was born with severely clubbed feet. That's right. So, yeah. I I can imagine even if Lynch did want this to represent his anxieties as a parent, he'd be a bit loath to mention it, just to spare mm, That's what I mean. Joel's feelings. It's quite personal, you know. So, yeah, and, and Jennifer's in the film. So not not only have you got feet like Lord Byron, <laughs> I've made a film to paint you off. <laughs> no wonder she was so twisted and God knows what in her older age as well. <laughs> Should we take a little break and we'll talk about what we're watching next time? We will do. Indeed. <laughs> <laughs> and now, preview time. When it comes to entertainment, you can't beat a good film. So let's take a look at what's coming your way. Right, Charles, what we're watching next time is down to me, I believe. Hit me. Hit you, okay. It's going to be completely opposite to Eraser Head. In fact, the only comparison I can probably see with it is it's in black and white. <laughs> That's good. It's about, to, I mean, obviously this is black and white for stylistic reasons. Yeah. I'm guessing you're going to go back. We're going back to 1945. Um, oh, I did. Yeah, we've we focused a little, little heavily on the 70s, the 80s recently, and the 60s to a certain degree. I think the oldest movie we've done recently was Sweet Smell of Success, possibly in the 50s. Yeah, yeah it was. So it's, it's directed by Michael Curtiz, famous director. I think we've dealt with Michael Curtiz previously. Oscar-winning performance um, from Joan Crawford. I didn't realise. I haven't seen this. It's been sitting on my shelf for a long time. I didn't realise it's actually a film noir. So falls into our wheelhouse ever, ever so slightly. 1945, it's Mildred Pierce. Brilliant. Yeah, you heard um, of it? J- James... Uh, James M. Kane novel. Exactly. I watched The Postman Always Rings twice for the first time last week. 
he wrote so, a couple of indemnity as well. He did indeed, and it sort of influenced my choice a little bit here, and I didn't realise it was going to be in the same sort of vein as a film noir. Hour and 51 minutes long, looks really interesting. I'm pretty sure Michael Glasper, hello again Michael, Michael watched it recently because he posted something on Facebook, so a little bit of feedback from you would be nice, mate, if you wanted to chip something in and tell us what you thought of the movie, or indeed anybody else out there that's seen it. Don't forget, we've got foreplay hey, next next time. And that, what, what would you decide the subject was going to be? It's going to be films that... Charlie or anyone else would rather <laughs> shit in their hands and clap than watch. <laughs> I was going to say movies or actors that you wouldn't touch with a barge pole, but yeah, that'll do. Yeah. <laughs> so I'll put it out on Facebook if you want to comment on Facebook. If not, email us at thestinkingpaws at gmail.com. You can follow us on Twitter at Stinking Paws and all our episodes are available on stinkingpaws.libsyn.com. Anything else you want to add, sir? I'm happy to uh, end this disturbing sort of odyssey that we've had today. <laughs> with, with that. I think um, it will probably be a long time before I go back to any lynch or, or that stuff, although I know he's been, you know, flavoured a month recently because Twin Peaks returned. Yeah. But I think I've had my... I feel exactly exactly and it's good today that we've gone back to the uh the good old days of the two hour plus podcast as well that's it yeah let's not make a habit of it eh? no. <laughs> <laughs> thanks for being there mate i'll see you next time my pleasure i'll see you soon cheers mate Tada. the management of this theater suggests that for the greater entertainment of your friends who have not yet seen the picture you will not divulge to anyone the secret of the ending Jamboree is worse than two cats on a fence. You dudes get lost now, you hear? Good night, ladies. Good night, sir. When you fail down, try positive thinking. That's what I told the man said. Don't wear a frown. Try positive thinking. Laugh at your troubles instead. You've got to look on the bright side. On hope so much depends With your confidence sinking Positive thinking Helps you on the way, my friend When things look black Try positive thinking Treat every season as spring No glancing back Try positive thinking Trust what tomorrow may bring This crazy world that we live in We'll keep on spinning round But with good, strong, positive thinking We'll get together and life won't let us down Shut up, you ugly bitch Oh, shut up, we enjoy it